Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Listeners, just so you know, these are the dulcet tones of Cincinnati <coughs> baritone, Mr. Stephen Michael Hanna. Hi. We've broken into his robust so performing schedule. We've we've stolen him away from his many lady fans to bring him oh, to you. Dear gosh. <laughs> so too late to back out of this. <laughs> yes. Stephen, would you like to tell us who you are, or would you like us to tell you who you are? Please tell me more about myself. No, just kidding. No. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I am Stephen Michael Hanna, and as Katie mentioned earlier, I am a singer. I am originally from East Texas, uh, well, Northeast in the Dallas area, then grew up in rural towns. But yeah, uh, so I got into singing for school, then uh, whenever I was originally doing music education, wanted to be a choral conductor and things of that nature, but then did a big role in an opera in undergrad and kind of got the performance bug and then started going, hmm. And oh, and the then I'm... Time, hmm. Oh, the first Sorry. time I saw Stephen was in this capacity uh, when he was performing, I thought starring, but sadly was only performing in <laughs> The Merry Widow, in which he was wearing a crazy wig, a tuxedo top, a kilt, and I know this mm -hmm. part because he flashed the audience um, heart bo shaped boxers or heart print boxers. And that I went, I, I need to know that man. <laughs> yeah. I've only yeah. seen pictures of that event. Katie, it, I did not know you were there live. I was there live. Mm -hmm. I saw those legs live. Yep. But you were going to so. say, because you have other projects, what else do you do with your, with your practice? Oh, I, uh, in terms of, like, career, I was just going to add that I, uh, since, the, since the vocal performance world is, it's not a 9-to-5, like, salaried position. It's all contract-based work. Um, so to have some sense of normalcy of schedule or stability, but also for health insurance, um, <laughs> I am a barista and coffee master for Starbucks Corporation. Your connection to Starbucks is also really interesting in the connection with the conversation topic for today. Um, about <laughs> the fact that they negate each other to a point. <laughs> oh, no. I feel but, that. Yeah, I wonder. And, yeah, with Emily, too, like, these questions of recycling and sustainability, I wonder if that's part of your journey with this. But if you could just tell us, like, when did it start? You, I, I consider you like a recycling guru. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So right, can you sure. just walk us through your experience with this or where it started? Or so, Yeah. Um, so I've always been trying, uh, well, I say always. I've, <clears throat> for like, like the past, better part of the last decade, I've been uh, more conscious about like, wow, I seem to produce a lot of trash sometimes. And it kind of started through like a lot of things. Uh, with me, so I love comedy and I love like watching stand-up comedy, especially. 
But every so often, one of those just kind of sticks in your brain. And one of them, there is a guy named there's a guy named Andy Andrews. He's a Christian comedian. Uh, there's one bit that he's talking about, uh, like, have you ever noticed random things like that? Talk about whenever he was a kid and he was going, you ever noticed? And I would always ask my mom this. Why does our trash weigh more than the or why do I? Why is our trash way more than the groceries are brought in, or something of that nature? Mm. But he wasn't—he mm. was just me, just as a passing doll within a string of like one-liners. But I kind of latched onto that one strangely and was going, "Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, he's right," and and just started randomly just becoming aware of it, of, of like, "Well, I, this is a lot of trash going out of this apartment." Um, or just how you view certain items of like getting something knowing like consciously knowing that you're going to throw it away later or just just random things like that um but one of the things that kind of uh was one of the turning points if you will for it is i saw lauren singer she's one of the big zero waste life activists um and i saw one of her early videos of her whenever she was just trying it out she's now known worldwide but uh but yeah, she had a video of her just starting out, like first trying it and talk, going around talking with very, these various experts. And whenever they, uh, the experts <clears throat> of the time were saying that the average person um, accumulates, the average person, I, don't, I think they were talking just in terms of America, but the average person accumulates four pound, roughly four pounds of trash a day, which averages out to about 120 to 130 pounds per month. If that's just on average, uh, and so part of the the video that she does is she's she goes to the other extreme though of like she's wasn't so much on recycling, just on trying to live in a way that you don't create waste. Um, so she like she goes and buys reusable produce bags and things of that nature. She uh, starts I a worm bin. Now. Yeah, uh, she starts a worm bin, and she got a mason jar. And the the mason jar was her trash can for that month. But yeah, so the, just watching that video is, was kind of one of the turning points for me and just going, hmm, maybe there is... I mean, I always knew that recycling was good and a cool thing, but everywhere, like, charges if you're going to have a recycling service for your house and all these things and just going, I'm, <laughs> I'm just... I'm still fairly new out of college. I'm a freelance artist, which means I'm... Spare money is kind of, huh? Um, so, yeah, it, it had always been this thing that uh, one day I would love to be able to recycle and, like, do this thing to help with the uh, – help in my in my one-person way to help the environment, but it wasn't an attainable thing. And then she was showing that there were certain things in her video that I was going, okay, well, I could do that, I could, or I already do this. I could just do a little bit more or something. I uh, – like, I just started looking around for bottles, glass bottles, found out that glass bottles, you don't have to tear the paper off because they can have a way to, like, sort that out and such. They can wash it off, and then they can recycle the paper, the paper separately. And, the, and then finding out what types of cans you can and cannot do at various places, what, uh, what are the, like, various bottles, like plastic bottles that I had or plastic containers. And, yeah, so, it, uh, I mean, I could just keep rambling on or talking, or that's uh, that's basically answers your question of like how I kind of got started into it and what was the turning point for me with it. Um, yeah. yeah. We, we have talked um, just about sometimes how disconnected we can be 
as you've been kind of transformed by this practice, do you feel like, like, do you feel more connected to the environment and to your fellow man? Uh, yeah, I, I do feel like, a, I mean, I, in a non-conceited way, it has made me a better person. It has made me more, more conscious. Um, and it's, it's funny because I actually, in some regards, I try to approach recycling in terms of how it relates to me and other people the same way I do with my Christian faith. If, uh, so, uh, and you're nodding your head. So, I, so maybe this wasn't as an out, outlandish kind of thought as I thought it was. But it felt, it felt kind of weird to me at first. But so it's something that I do and I feel strongly convicted about. And I do, I, I do the best I can while realizing that I'm not always going to succeed sort of a deal. And it's always a work in process. Um, and it's something I want. It's something that I think is good and very necessary for the future of life as we know it. And, uh, yeah. And so it was a weird place of, it was a weird place mentally of figuring out, but able, able to kind of share from how I, uh, view conversations or like sharing my faith with other people who don't necessarily agree with it is as something that I'm, it's not for me to judge someone who's not doing it. Um, it's not for me to look down on someone else who's not doing it. It is something that I, it's one of those, I notice that they are not sort of doing or that it's something that they don't subscribe to maybe a, a different way to word it. Um, and then sharing, hey, I do this thing. If you're interested, I'd love to chat with you about it. And at the end of the day, realizing that they're going to do whatever they're going to do, it's just I feel it. I feel it at least in part of my place to at least kind of initiate the conversation. And the same deal in terms of like we're talking uh, about faith and God and those things. Just normalizing the fact that it's a conversation that comes up. So yeah. Like, these sure. are things that you yourself are doing, and I think people are so much more open when they see and encounter, like, an authentic person. Right. With religion in particular, there's a lot of hypocrisy. Sure, sure, yeah. Right. And I think that's part of the, mm -hmm. I, I think that's why you have to, I, and since you bring up, like, the, there's so much hypocrisy that we see, is that... Uh, to steal a phrase that Katie said, I feel in the church we have to uh, own our own trash, and accepting the imperfections within ourselves, within myself, whenever I enter into these faith conversations, and whenever I'm talking with someone about what I'm doing in terms of environmental stuff, or uh, just giving myself grace and forgiveness, and owning up to that, to that I have my own downfalls, and all. <clears throat> like aspects of it and that, that those are things I'm trying to work on. Um, I work for a yeah. corporation that deals, that produces a lot of waste during the oh. day. And so that's going, yes, it's, it's the deal of recognizing, yes, I am at a point to a point kind of harboring uh, certain mm. th uh, mentalities or certain life choices, but mm. there are certain ways. This is part of what I do for my own life to help keep me sane, but also to do what I can within the, within the confines of what I can control. Um, yeah, Stephen, this yeah. kind of conversation, I think, overlaps with several things. I mean, we're in election season, and I, something mm. I've heard for years is people saying, well, my vote doesn't count. 
I'm only one person, um, and that kind of language, you know, is a problem for several reasons. Uh, but one person can make a difference, and we're not. We're also, I think, part of growing up in maturity is accepting that you are, in fact, only responsible for what you do. That you cannot. Um, you don't get to make decisions for other people. And when we try, that's, I mean, that's mm -hmm. uh, in a serious realm of unethical behavior, however we do that. Mm -hmm. But in, but it's also acknowledging that we've been impacted by other people and their actions. So when you talk yeah. about, you know, I, I talk about what I do, and ultimately I have to let go of what the other person does, but that my responsibility is to also speak. Um, right. I'm kind of curious. Well, I'd like to add to this a little bit in saying that uh, my influences certainly came when I was very young, and a lot of the reason why I recycle and compost has to do with animal welfare and trash getting in water and oil spills and animals being trapped in the cycle of our waste. Um, and then I became yeah. a vegetarian about 18 months ago. For me, I think a lot about like physical products because. I studied industrial design in college, and we were like forced to watch this documentary called Objectified, and it talks about the product life cycle or lack thereof, where like like ninety percent of the stuff that designers design is going to end up in a land, and just thinking about like okay, as I move forward in my career as a designer, like. Do I want to seek out a position at a company that is like actively trying to like be more sustainable? Like, is that even a possibility? Because I don't see companies doing that, at least not the super big ones. I mean, I did two co-ops at Hasbro, uh, which are basically internships, and I just kept thinking like. These are little plastic figurines that are going to end up in a landfill, and they're not going to decompose. And so, you know, a kid is going to play with them for a few years. They'll get donated to a thrift store, and eventually just get thrown out because they're these little three-inch figurines. And I was just in charge of assigning colors and textures to them so that when the molten plastic gets injected into the mold, the figurine comes out looking like we want it to. And it's just like why am I doing this? <laughs> mm -hmm. it, so that was something else I was thinking about, which is why I appreciated what you guys said about like just like doing what you can and mm -hmm. yeah. And that just also makes me think about like there is kind of like different levels of ability when it comes to recycling. Like some people aren't able to afford to cuz like a lot of times yeah. You know, like it costs more money to buy the eggs that are in a cardboard carton versus a styrofoam mm -hmm. carton. Like I know that's why I buy the styrofoam carton of eggs. Because yeah. the cardboard carton ones are always also the organic eggs or the cage-free eggs. They don't offer yep. the just regular old eggs in a cardboard carton. I don't know mm -hmm. why. Yeah, but on the other hand, as a designer, I know that it's going to take big corporations like turning the fucking boat around yep. to mm -hmm. make an actual lasting difference. <laughs> like, I mean, just look up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch or whatever it's called. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. That's like 100% like my industry's fault. But uh, 
Oh, and the other thing, so the other the point to like what Emily was saying that I wanted to address is that, or just kind of reaffirm is that it's not going to happen quickly uh, in terms of these large-scale changes, and that's another kind of connecting back to our faith, and that's part of where I, I'm pulling this from, is that we look at the Bible and the changes that happen throughout the Bible. For instance, like with mm-hmm. women, how women are viewed in the Old Testament. Like you look in Exodus and in Judges, uh, specifically like Exodus, I think like 20, there are rules for women slaves and how they're treated and such. Like the woman slave cannot go with the husband because of this situation, but they can because of that one. And we're listening to mm-hmm. going, oh my gosh, this is crazy. This isn't the Bible that they were making this choice. And I was talking with one of my mentors who's a biblical scholar and apologist, um, and he was saying, so part of the deal with this, we're not saying this is okay in today's standards, but part of the deal with this is that nothing of that nature, no clause of this nature preexisted. So this was the start of like trying to get something in there which reserved the rights for women in some capacity. And then that changed later on. Um, and then and then you see once you get to like Paul's letters, there are women who are ministers in the church uh, mm-hmm. and such like that. And so... And so it's a hard one, especially with these issues of, like, race. We want there to be, and that's why you're having these marches and all these people mm-hmm. going, going out, and the, all this upheaval is trying to get a big ka-chunk change to happen yeah. to get yeah. us over this hurdle. But, but And we've had some of those moments over history, and they've been great yeah. things, but even still, even with those big hurdle jumps, like, uh, like for instance, with the bus riots and such that happened back mm-hmm. uh, in the last century, that ha- those happened. They signed the new laws. Those were that was in the '60s. It wasn't until the late '70s, whenever people of color started of their own accord being uh, sitting in other parts of the bus without people like Ooh. beating them up or having mm. issues on the daily. Even that, even after the law was set, it took 15-ish years. Uh, 10 to 15 years before people across the board started doing that. So it's one of those, it's, uh, even with these big changes, we still strive for them, but we have to main, we have to keep the mindfulness of realizing that over time through the Bible and through all of our history, it, you have to look and just kind of keep being encouraged and just kind of hold the, hold the line. That's the question on my heart is like, how do we, how do we move forward when the world is burning down? And how do we know that the only way to stop the world from burning down is moving forward one step at a time? And to know that it's going to take a, what is it, a long, obe- a long obedience in the same direction. Same direction. It's like a long day-by-day day decision to try to do something like one degree. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. that over the course of your life, we can change. Start mm. with the small seemingly minuscule and and meaningless things that you can do that do not affect your life, that do not interrupt your life. And just, Mm -hmm. just, and that's because that's how I started at least. Um, And then just kind of go from there uh, because then you can start getting, that's what will bring lasting. It's the same with people who diet. Whenever you try to do these like crash cold turkey diets, yeah, that's what they'll do. Like, as smokers are the ones who haven't figured out, by and large, I feel like, because you talk to any recovered smoker, say, what did you do? What? How did you get off? They said, I did one less cigarette a day. But you were still mm. smoking 90% of a pack. Yeah. But one cigarette a day less. I felt like I could do that. And then just back it off over the time. Anything mm. you try to do cold turkey, either starting or ending, 
you're going to revert. Nine times out of ten, the person is going to revert back because it's too big of a shock that's overwhelming, and then you just shut down to it altogether. I, I, yeah, there's just so much that we can address and that we should address, and I think what you're saying and what is so valuable about your experience, Stephen, is that you're starting with you. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you're starting here. This is this body, this understanding, this way of seeing the world, this is what I can control. That's step one, right? And modeling and problem solving and finding methods for it to be sustainable for you as an artist, a starving artist, um, <laughs> then can maybe give some perspective for other people who are in a more mm -hmm. affluent place um, yeah. and just be like, oh, you, just have to, you just have to think a little bit differently. So yeah, <clears throat> let's shift um, and just like chit chat about Jojo Rabbit. I'm jealous because all three of you have fantastic German accents. And after, after uh, our household, the Rothfuss household, uh, got done watching Jojo Rabbit, we were doing, like, terrible, terrible German accents for, like, two weeks. <laughs> so I'm sure yours will be, like, prime time, and I'm excited. So I'm excited to hear what you guys uh, thought of Jojo Rabbit. I mean, it's my favorite movie, so... Oh, wow. I love it. I mean, it'll it can be it can be superseded by something else at a later date. I'm an open-minded woman. Here, let's give just a brief synopsis in case anyone has not seen it because you should. Yes. So, Jojo Rabbit is about a ten-year-old boy in 1940. <coughs> is it 19, it's 1945, right, Emily? In oh hell Germany. yeah. It's and over like the last six months of the war, I the believe. The last six months of the war. And he is a member of the Young Volk. He's a member of the Hitler Youth. And he has an imaginary friend named Adolf Hitler that helps him cope with uh, being a small little runty boy in uh, the Young Volk as he's trying to navigate his first like overnight summer camp training with his uh, mentor, his real in-person mentor, Captain K, uh, and what happens to him and his conscience and his experience in the last six months of the war. And it's mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic. Emily, can you tell us why it's your favorite film? I have always been really interested in German history, uh, particularly the war years of the Second World War, and... Yeah, and to me, this film was just, like, a real fresh take on that. Um, and it's very, like, colorful and vibrant feeling. And it's, like, it's funny, but, like, kind of in a dark way, which I like. Um, so we see, there are just a couple film clips of him. Is that right, Emily? In the beginning. Yeah, but, of him at his rallies. Of him at his rallies. screaming crowds. Right. Him. But like on, he's a boy band figure. Like he's a boy band figure. Mm -hmm. But in yeah. the actual film, all we see of him is a is about 90% of it is a comic portrayal by Taika Waititi, the director, but it's a very comedic performance <clears throat> and this you brought down some criticism on the film. Steven, I think I asked you on Saturday night what you thought of that. Do you remember yeah. or have any new yeah. thoughts on that um decision? 
Because, because yeah, you were saying that it, it had gotten flack in various areas from people uh, who were like, Hitler shouldn't be ever be portrayed as a comedic character mm-hmm. or role. Um, and I didn't have a problem with it in that regard uh, for a few different reasons. But I... It's again. I mentioned uh, I I'm very big into like stand up, and as part of that, and I, I, sorry to repeat stuff that uh, Emily and Katie heard the other night, no, but I, I I'm a nerd, and so I've I don't just watch stand up, but I watch a lot of the behind the scenes. Or I've watched like Jerry Seinfeld's uh, comedians in cars getting coffee, and actually took notes. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I I would like to watch that stuff, and so I've heard. Uh, bits of various conversations about people off camera um, about how in in reality nothing is for comedians and for people writing in that style nothing is off the table to be viewed in a comedic light but there is a proper time and place for it so yeah yeah and do you have a read on that I don't have a read on Hitler vis-a-vis a comedic character but I do, I think Jojo Rabbit in this day and age, <laughs> um, for this time, is provides almost like a roadmap for the mental shift that we have been talking about in this episode. Uh, yes. mm-hmm. And it comes with, you are personally vulnerable. You become, mm-hmm. instead of becoming the majority, you become, yeah. you have an experience as the minority, which is what JoJo's experience is. Yeah. Um, he goes from being part of the group to not being part of the group. And then in that mourning process and desiring to be back in the majority, he encounters someone who is vulnerable, who is literally living in the margins of their house. Um, and, uh, and then over time, like... Stephen has been saying, like, it's a long period of time. Over right. time, an intimate connection with someone in which you are able to not only see that they are vulnerable, you're able to see yourself as vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Until we do that work, or until sometimes that work happens to us, like it does for JoJo, then we will continue to go with the majority. We'll continue to sit in positions of power and not even see it will continue to make choices that harm mm-hmm. people and not even be conscious. JoJo wakes mm-hmm. up in this movie and I think provides a path for us to follow, to wake up mm-hmm. to. And I think that is, that's why it's my favorite movie. Mm-hmm. And I think what you discover by the end that you know Emily's favorite character, we see um, a man who has been He's had the same path. We just don't see that directly. We're seeing indirectly, and by the end of the movie, you realize, oh my gosh, um, Captain K has also had JoJo's path just a little bit before him, and we're seeing his story play out, even though we Mm -hmm. don't necessarily know that. And the first time through, I was only picking Mm -hmm. up on that a little bit, and then seeing it from the beginning, Mm -hmm. it was like, oh, this is someone else who's woken up mm-hmm. and who's yeah. doing, because he's an adult. And he's just delusioned. He yeah, he's walking yeah. a slightly different path. But Yeah, Jojo Rabbit is definitely one of those movies that just packs so much in. It's not only worth watching once. You have to watch it over and over. Well, team, woohoo!
I so I just so appreciate this is very life giving for me to hear all of you. Yeah, thanks for asking me to do this. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Stephen, you're in our fine. very first episode. We talk about you oh, a lot. Wow. All right. Alrighty. Bye, cool. y'all. Thanks, David. See y'all. Thank you so Bye. much, Stephen. Bye.